and I couldn't even tell them thank you. So what do you do with a favor you can't pay back? You pay it forward. The true definition of what God thinks love is is found in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. Thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things. Endures all things. Love never fails. These verses paint a beautiful picture of what love truly is. In 1 Corinthians 13, 1-3, it says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith, so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I could bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Ellen White said in Acts of the Apostles, page 318 and 319, No matter how high the profession, he whose heart is not filled with the love for God and his fellow man is not a true disciple of Christ. In his zeal, he might even meet a martyr's death. Yet if not actuated by love, he would be regarded by God as a deluded enthusiast or an ambitious hypocrite. God tells us that we could be a prophet, give everything we have to the poor, even die for him. But if we're not willing to show the same selfless love that he shows to us, to our neighbors, all that we do is worthless. We could live a blameless life, never break the Sabbath, never break the commandment of Christ. But if we refuse to use the love that God has put in us, we won't make it into heaven. In John chapter 15, verses 12 through 13, it says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. Jesus told his disciples that it's our duty to love each other like Christ loves us. We need to be so full of love that we would be willing to sacrifice ourselves for a complete stranger. Even us, our church family, shouldn't we get along? We're the people who are supposed to show the world the love of Christ. But if we can't even get along with each other, our message will be hopeless. When Jesus was on our earth, he didn't hang out with the special or important people. He spent all his time with the tax collectors, the sinners, and the children. The people that society considered worthless were his best friends. Many of those people even became his disciples. Jesus didn't do this to get attention. He didn't do it to make himself feel good. He did it because he truly loved them and was setting an example for us. They were his children. And if God loves us, shouldn't we spread his love by loving others the same way? John Foriot says, He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Unless we love, we don't even know who God is, because he is love. He is the example to us of pure sacrificial love, because he is the one that created it. Bob Goff said, It will be our love, not our opinions, that will be our greatest contribution to the world. We could tell the world about the Sabbath, the state of the dead, the health message, and the second coming all day, but unless we truly show love to everyone we meet, our church's message will go nowhere, and the world will never change for the good because of us. There's a quote I heard that says, some people don't need you to preach a sermon, they need you to live one. If we go out telling people that we are God's people and that he's with us, but we don't show love in our everyday life, why should they believe us? 
In Luke 6.35 it says, But love your enemies, do good and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you'll be the sons of the Most High. For he is kind, the unthankful and evil. Wait a second. We aren't only supposed to love the little sweet lady at church. We're supposed to love our enemies. I have to love my brothers? Just kidding. But we all have someone who gets on our nerves. When I was in fourth grade, there was this girl who hated me. I even asked her why, and she said, I just do. Well, okay then. I tried to love her, but man, was that hard. I would pray and I would say, God, I get that we're supposed to love everyone, but can you make an exception? Please. He made it clear that his answer was no. Even to this day, she still doesn't like me, but I've gotten better at loving people. She showed up after school to say hi to her friends. She's homeschooled now. Saw me, then stuck out her tongue. I just smiled and waved, and then walked away, resisting the urge to roll my eyes. I saw a quote that said, hate cannot drive out hate. Only love is able to do that. By hating our enemies, it's like trying to put out fire with gasoline. It just fuels it. But when we love our enemies, it's we pour water over the fire and put it out. Abraham Lincoln once said, do I not destroy my enemies by making them my friends? Now some people are hard to love, and it's not that easy, but never give up on loving people. God's not up in heaven saying about us, oh, there he goes again, yelling at his sister, does he ever learn? Oh, look, seriously, I just forgave her for that yesterday, and here she goes, doing it again. It's not that hard to be perfect. He's up there loving us and carrying us when we fall into his traps and says, I forgive you. That's the unconditional love that he shows us. Someone once said, you will never look into the eyes of someone God doesn't love. If our perfect God is able to love our sinful world that much, why is it so hard for us to love our peers? God says it's not easy, but it's worth it. The verse in Luke even says that we, when we love our enemies, our world will be great, not on earth, but in heaven. In conclusion, loving others may not always be easy, but God says that we will be blessed if we do. And if we don't love others, we don't even know who God truly is. We don't have to give someone a million dollars, but simple acts of love and kindness could bring someone to Christ. Before I start, I'd like to have another word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that everyone that got here got here safe. Um, thank you that it's your Sabbath day and that we have another day of rest. Please help, please give me the words to say and just help us to all travel safely home. Amen. Right. At more than one point in our lives, all of us have had to choose whether to stay faithful to God or to go after our own selfish desires. Many people choose to neglect God for the more fun or more enjoyable things of the world. We as Christians know that not only is God better than the things of the world, those things that seem better and easier to us actually end up in destruction. First of all, what's the big difference between worldly success and godly success? Can you have both at the same time? 
The dictionary defines success as a favorable or desired outcome, the attainment of wealth, favor, or eminence. Success, though, means different things to everyone. As a Christian, what is your definition of success? First, I'm going to look at some people who are only successful worldly. Many of today's celebrities abandoned their religious background when they became popular. Katy Perry, for example, is a secular singer and songwriter who was raised as a preacher's daughter in a Pentecostal church. She began, like many of today's music artists, singing in her church. She began her musical career when, as a gospel singer and, con and continued until she was 17 when she renounced her faith and began singing some highly questionable pop songs. She might not have had quite as a successful career as a Christian musician, but it still would have been better to stay faithful to God, no matter the reason she might have had to leave him. Another example of a celebrity who turned away from God was Brad Pitt, an actor and film producer. He was raised as a Southern Baptist, but now states that he does not have a great relationship with religion and swings back and forth between atheism and agnosticism. Both of these people could have stayed close to their relationship with God for, by exa for example, singing Christian songs and acting only in good movies, only taking good roles in those movies. Instead of counting on God to bless them, they took the way that guaranteed them, them the most worldly success, even though it won't last. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to 1 John 2, 15-17, is the scripture reading? It's up here if you don't have a Bible. It says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Even though there are many, many examples of people that are successful in the eyes of the world that betrayed God, there are a few that kept their religion with them and have made it a big and important part of their life. Tim Tebow is a former NFL quarterback who made a big impact on the sports world with religion. In his early years, he preached at schools and villages in the Philippines with his parents. Tebow played college football at the University of Florida, and during the 2019 National Championship game on January 8th, he simply wrote John 3.16 on his eye black. Not only was the verse the highest ranked Google search over the next day, it was searched about 94 million times. Even though NFL rules banned players from writing messages on their eye black, the story did not end there. Exactly three years later from that date, on January 8, 2012, Tim Tebow was a quarterback for the Denver Broncos of the National Football League. The Broncos had just beat the Pittsburgh Steelers in the first round of the playoffs. That game, exactly three years since the 2009 college football championship when Tebow wrote John 316 on his eye black, Tebow threw for 316 passing yards, 31.6 yards per completion, which was an NFL record, 3.16 yards per rush attempt, the time of possession was 31.06 minutes, and the CBS rating for that night peaked at 31.6. After the game, another 91 million people Googled John 316. When asked about this coincidence post-game, Tebow only said that he serves a big God. Tebow also accidentally started an internet trend called Tebowing. 
On the sideline, before games and after big plays, he would kneel one knee on the ground and offer up a quick prayer, no matter what was happening around him. In one instance, Matt Prater of the Broncos made a game-winning field goal to cap off an amazing comeback win led by Tebow to, meet the, to beat the Miami Dolphins. He immediately dropped to one knee with all his teammates mobbing the field around him and thanked God for the victory. He also has written seven books, gives inspirational speeches around the country, and is known as one of the most, if not the most, influential Christian athlete all time. While someone like Katy Perry has had more worldly success, Tim Tebow is a far greater role model, and honestly, I had to look for a while to find that normal-ish picture of Katy Perry I showed earlier. I mean, now she looks kind of crazy, sings crazy, crazy songs, and is just an overall strange person. What these singers, actors, and pro athletes do is magnified for the world to see in the news, on YouTube, and on social media. What we do may not seem as important, but we know that God's opinion of us is far more important than what anyone else sees us as. Speaking for myself, I'm a pretty good basketball player. Next year, I'm going to be a freshman in high school, and I'm already playing on my school's varsity team. I constantly find myself barely remembering to thank God for my talent and ability. I also try to play in a way that glorifies him, like not complaining when I disagree with the referee's call and showing good sportsmanship to the other team. We all need to be careful to not get too prideful in our own accomplishments and please God first. Um, please go to Galatians 1 verse 10, or let's look at it, look at it up here. For do I persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I seek to please men, I will not be a bondservant of Christ. Then Romans 12, 2 says, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. This isn't a new struggle in our world. If you look in the Bible, you see many examples of people who either stayed faithful to God or went their own way. One of these people who I would like to emphasize is Saul. Uh, I'm going to go to 1 Samuel 9, 2 through 3. And he had a choice and handsome son whose name was Saul. There was not a more handsome person than he among the children of Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. And Kish said to his son Saul, Please take one of the servants with you and arise. Go and look for the donkeys. So Saul and his servant traveled, looking for the donkeys for two or three days. They were about to return home when Saul had an idea. And he said to him, Look now, there is, a, there is in this city a man of God, and he is an honorable man. All that he says surely comes to pass. So let us go there. Perhaps he can show us the way that we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But look, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread in our vessels is all gone, and we have nothing to bring the man of God. What do we have? As you see here, there is nothing especially great about Saul in this point in his history. He's just a really tall, good-looking guy who, was, who got sent by his dad to look for some runaway donkeys. He was obedient, soft-spoken, and showed respect to Samuel, who's the man of God he was talking about. Saul didn't know it yet, but his life was about to change. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 9:17 that when Samuel first laid eyes on Saul, God told Samuel that Saul was going to be the first king of Israel. For about the first two years of Saul's reign in Israel, he was a great king in the eyes of the people and in the eyes of God. He was being a great example of how a person can have things that are considered good and successful in the eyes of the world and still be a man of God. All of that, though, was about to change. 
When the, people, when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves and thickets, in rocks and holes and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to, in the, to the land of Gad and Gilead. As for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling. Then he waited seven days, according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul and the soldiers in Israel were about to go into a huge battle against the Philistines, and they were kind of scared. Saul and Samuel had already agreed that in, in seven days, Samuel was going to come and offer up a burnt offering to God to provide safety for the battle. He was in kind of a tough spot. He should have been patient and continued waiting for Samuel, but instead, what did he do? First Samuel 13, 9 and 10 says, So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and peace offerings here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened, as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering, that Samuel came, and Saul went out to meet him, that he might greet him. The reason this was so important was because Saul, as a king, was not permitted to offer sacrifices, as that was only something that a priest could do. This was the first of many future mistakes for Saul. Many of us probably know how this story ends, but let's read 1 Samuel fifteen twenty-six through 28 anyway. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. What happened to Saul? He He began as such a great, godly king, and then became a desperate, evil man. The problem with Saul, as well as with many other people that are successful only by the standards of the world, is pride. He began to think that he was good enough that he could perform a sacrifice, good enough to make, that he could make his own rules, and finally he began to think that he was too good to need God. If you got a bulletin, you would have seen that the title of my sermon is God versus the World. God shouldn't have to compete for our love and devotion. We should be fully committed to him for one big reason. He loves us more than we can know. So even though it seems like he is against the people who do worldly things, he is really trying to win those people back to him. We'll have closing prayer now. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Um, Please help us to be able to recognize that you're the one who gives us all our talents and abilities. Please help us to have a good rest of the day today and... Um, safe travels home, and I pray that we all just have a good day. Amen. Please turn in your hymnals to number 184, Jesus Paid It All, and please stand.
Dear Father in heaven, we thank you so much for this wonderful Sabbath day that you've given us. Thank you so much that you love us so much that you would die for us to save us. And please help us to be able to show that love to others and unselfishly love others like you love us. Please bless us as we go home today. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>